Okay, good morning to each of you. And I feel the need to say right in the beginning that this is a little, uh, maybe the word is disconcerting to uh, be sitting uh, about 20 feet from the back of the gym at a table and talking into a mic. I, was, I forgot to tell that they can text me with questions. Oh, Ben wants to say something. Yeah, I, was, I forgot to mention um, after the message, if anyone has any comments they'd like to make or questions regarding the sermon, if you want to just text my phone um, with with those questions, I can read them or, or comments that you'd like to make um, regarding the sermon. So go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, I was saying it's a little disconcerting to be looking at the back of the gym here, and uh, the, I can see three people. And, and so it's a little, I suppose like uh, anybody that's talking on the radio can't see their audience. And, and you know, kind of like you have to in your head know that you know that you have an audience when you don't see one. So, uh, the title of my sermon this morning is "Making Disciples in the Life of the Church," and my theme verse is Romans fifteen fourteen, which reads, "And concerning you, my brothers and sisters." I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. And I'm reading from the New American Standard, which I believe all of my reading this morning will be from the New American Standard. So I'd like to begin by connecting this verse and this sermon to the one I preached three weeks ago on January 2. In that sermon, based on Colossians 1, 1 to 12, we looked at Paul's prayer for the Colossians. In that passage, Paul says, uh, he is praying always for them because he heard of their faith and love which he said was the result of their hope. Paul prays that as a result of their faith and love and hope, they will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that they would walk worthy of the Lord. And if these two things happen, Paul says, they will bear fruit. Increase in knowledge of God, be empowered or strengthened, and become more grateful. So, in other words, Paul was praying for their growth in spiritual and emotional maturity, growth in their ability to know God and God's will, growth in their spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they can walk worthy or walk the way Jesus wants them to walk. And Paul says the result of all of this is more fruit and more knowledge of God 
and more spiritual and emotional strength and more gratefulness. So I want to say that certainly what Paul has described here is what we would call spiritual and emotional uh, growth toward maturity. So this morning I'm going to focus on the place of discipling or growing disciples in the life of the church, disciples who can experience what Paul described in Colossians 1, and for the sake of time, uh, I'm going to divide this into two sermons, and I'll preach the first part this morning and the next part the next time I have an opportunity, which I believe is uh, March 13. So this morning, I'm going to connect the biblical command to admonish one another to Christ's mission for the church in Matthew 28. 18 to 20, and I'm going to develop the biblical command that believers disciple one another by looking at six passages of Scripture. And then in the uh, next sermon, uh, when I have an opportunity to speak about this again, I want to develop the idea that belonging relationships in the life of the church are a major contributing factor in spiritual and emotional growth toward maturity, and that um, individual interaction and small group interaction is a good place where that can happen. And, and in that sermon, I want to give some uh, suggestions uh, about the kinds of things that can happen in small groups that help uh, spiritual and emotional growth take place. So I'm going to start here with Matthew 28, Christ's command, uh, which reads this way, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I, I know that I have preached on that and talked about those verses several times before. So this, this is just a very brief summary. So the mission of the early church, I would say, is found in these words of Jesus, which were spoken, they were spoken just prior to his ascension. And they, they function as a commission statement, I think. And he said the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations, meaning every culture and nationality and people group, by baptizing, or the word is immersing, them in the name of, which means in the person of, the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So these statements present the mission of the church as making disciples who are formed into the character of Christ, disciples who are becoming more like Christ inside their person, developing the uh, attitudes and beliefs of Jesus Christ, the ones he had, the ones he wants us to have, disciples who are becoming uh, more like Christ and learning to do the things Jesus wants them to do. So Jesus said... Um, this can happen precisely because he is present in our space, working in us, working through us to accomplish this goal. So the primary mission of a New Testament church is to grow disciples into people who can do whatever it is that Jesus wants them to do by immersing people in the presence of God, immersing people in the scripture, immersing people in worship, immersing people in the presence of fellow believers, and discipling people for the purpose of spiritual and emotional growth. So this is how disciples are made. It's the way disciples are grown. And in order to fulfill this mission, a congregation has to structure opportunities for worship, for teaching the word, for development of belonging relationships, for honest sharing of victories and struggles in daily life, and, and, and for discipling of one another. In other words, the church has to intentionally provide these kinds of opportunities for these things to happen. So now I'm going to the six scripture passages that talk about believers discipling one another. Uh, the first one is the theme verse, Matthew 15:14, which reads, And concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. So to admonish means to call attention to and put in mind. So it has the idea of warning based on instruction. And Paul says they are full of goodness and they are knowledgeable about the things he is instructing them and are therefore qualified to instruct and warn one another. Paul is talking about ordinary believers, not ordained people, not trained um, 
well, I just use examples like not trained therapists, not trained counselors. Not, he's not talking about the spiritually elite. <clears throat> he's talking about ordinary believers. And he's saying that ordinary believers possess the wisdom, knowledge, and insight and and goodness, goodness of heart, goodness of intentions, that ordinary believers possess these qualities, the qualities that it takes to understand other believers' uh, behavior and motives, and that believers have a responsibility to to instruct and warn and assist other believers about areas of concern. The second uh, passage I have is Matthew 18, 15 to 22. It's a little longer. It reads this way. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile or heathen and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth, about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me, and I, shall, and I still forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy-seven times. Uh, that's this translation, seventy-seven times. So <clears throat> this passage gives instruction about what believers should do if another believer sins against them. And the first truth we need to acknowledge, I believe, is that this passage is giving instructions about a reality that every person listening to me has experienced. Every Everyone has been sinned against. 
And I'm saying that because it's very hard, probably impossible, to live in our fallen world and, and not be sinned against. And the second thing I think we need to acknowledge is the sad reality that each of us also uh, has sinned against others. Yeah, I would say this is not something that we can deny. And my, um, my observation is that most people are more aware of how other people sin against them than they are of how they have sinned against others. In fact, what I have observed is that some people find it almost impossible to acknowledge the ways they sin against others. So, uh, what Jesus is talking about here is a very uh, real to life uh, situation kind kind of thing that we face. So he says that the first step is to go to the person in private and express to the person in private the fault or sin you feel this person has committed against you. And if he listens and the matter is resolved, you will have gained your fellow believer. And this, this must not be done in vindictive anger, but in straightforward honesty. Uh, you can't have malice in your heart in order to accomplish this. The second step Jesus offers, if the first step did not resolve the issue, is to take several other brothers or sisters along to a second meeting. And the purpose of this meeting is to establish the truth, or maybe we could say discover the facts of the situation, uh, another way to say it, uh, the purpose of the meeting is to confirm the narrative. And the reason it is important to confirm the narrative is that a person's assumptions about what happened and why it happened usually determines whether or not we think someone sinned against us. And, and we all know I think we do, that sometimes our assumptions are not at all what the other person was thinking or intending to communicate. Sometimes our memories of things aren't uh, what they actually were, and sometimes our assumptions aren't actually what people intended. So that's, that's the purpose. So the third step, if the person cannot uh, hear the concern or the conclusion of the two or three people in that attempt to um, 
clarify what's true, uh, the matter needs to be taken to the church. And the fourth step, after the church has heard the situation and has come to a conclusion, if the person will not hear the church's conclusion, uh, Jesus says the person needs to be, I, I believe the, the idea there is excommunicated. Uh, now, without a doubt, this sounds, uh, even to me as I say this, it sounds extreme, and and uh, maybe it even sounds unchristian. Uh, but uh, I want to uh, smile just slightly and say that uh, I'm not the one that made that up, that this is what Jesus said. And... Uh, and I also want to say that that this, this whole process of resolving things, issues, that's described here takes a great deal of uh, wisdom uh, and, and thoughtfulness. But Jesus does describe something here that has to do with with... God's people relating to each other and helping each other uh, grow, grow in their ability to belong to each other, grow in their relationships. So the next passage is Galatians 6, 1 to 5, which reads, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting, but to himself alone and not to another, for each one will bear his own load. <clears throat> so some of these ideas are a little challenging, I think. If someone is overtaken in a fault, the, the person who is spiritual, of course, we could wonder who that is, uh, but the person who is spiritual should restore the person in the spirit of meekness. And, and the admonition there is of the meekness related to, is connected to considering oneself lest you be tempted. So according to these verses, speaking to one another about matters of concern is a Christian responsibility. The kinds of things that believers are responsible to address are called 
wrongdoing. And uh, I would say that this is a broad, a very broad category. This is not talking about, just to contrast, it's not talking about uh, what we might call mortal sins. It's not talking about, uh, be sure to talk to somebody if they commit some terrible sin. It's, it's speaking, it's talking about speaking to someone um, about common kinds of wrongdoing, faults, um, areas of um, ignorance or unawareness, doing things that are hurtful, doing things that Christ has said, Scripture says not to do. It's not talking about if someone happened to kill somebody, murder somebody, you ought to talk to them. My point is that it's talking about fairly common sorts of failings. It says that speaking to someone is about such things is one way to bear another person's burden, which is an interesting statement. Uh, suggesting that these kind of, of faults is a burden to the person who has them. Seeking to assist another person in their fault, uh, I would say, uh, we probably all know this, is a tricky business. The proper attitude for those who are quote, spiritual, is humility and gentleness. And uh, no superiority is allowed in this activity. So don't point out another person's flaws in order to feel superior or in order to feel better about yourself because now you've made someone else look worse than you. That that can't be the goal of this kind of address. So if you feel, if you've examined yourself, if you've thought about your own behavior, uh, attitudes and motives, and you feel good about it, it's okay best I can read this scripture, it's okay to feel good about it, but that's not a reason to boast to others. So be grateful. Be grateful and don't brag about yourself. So the idea here is um, when you address another person's fault, be sure that it is for their benefit. It's for their well-being. It's because they are bearing a burden that uh, is hindering them. Be sure that that your uh, desire to address this is for their welfare and not to make yourself look better than they look or to 
put them down in some way. The next passage is 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15, which reads, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek what is good for one another and for all people. So these verses tell us that different people need different kinds of uh, assistance or instruction. If a person is not cooperating or working, uh, seek to understand the motive, the reason. Is the person unruly, faint-hearted, or weak? Uh, which is it? So it says, admonish the unruly, and, and I believe in this context it's referring to people who are not working, uh, people who have uh, misunderstood, I think, Paul's instruction uh, about the Lord will return soon, and they have uh, maybe gone out and assembled on a hillside so that they can uh, uh, go up to glory when Jesus returns, and they have now um, forgotten to work. Um, so the word unruly, admonish the unruly, um, the meaning of that word is uh, a person who is insubordinate, uh, undisciplined, unwilling to submit to uh, another, not keeping rank, not obeying orders. And in this context, it's a person who's lazy. Uh, so the instruction here is to warn the lazy. I'm not sure who that would apply to. People we know, <laughs> I don't know. But this is what Paul is talking about. So he says, warn the lazy. But by contrast, encourage the faint-hearted. So the, la the lazy need to be warned and the faint-hearted need to be encouraged. Uh, so the, the faint-hearted um, has the idea, I think the King James says feeble-minded, uh, but it's talking about people who are timid, those, those who lack courage. So help the weak. Take tender care of those in need, those who are uh, lacking courage, those who are timid. <clears throat> so a question uh, to consider, I think, is how to distinguish between the lazy and the timid. Um, you know, on the surface of things, neither are productive. 
but the reasons differ. Uh, one is lazy, the other is afraid, maybe, afraid of doing something because they might do it wrong. They might not do it well enough. See, I would suspect that there are some among us, including myself, who have failed to do things because they didn't want to get it wrong, so they didn't do it at all. So the instruction here is to be wise and insightful when you seek to admonish someone. You use good judgment, be thoughtful about it. And we also need to notice the instruction to be patient with everyone and be careful not to repay evil with evil, but always seek what is good for other people, even those who uh, sin against us or those who we feel like are just a poor example of being a Christian. Um, so the attitude we have matters. But this, this is uh, what we would call discipling each other, to, to admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted. Two different types of people, but both need help. The next passage is Second Thessalonians 3, 6 to 15, which reads, uh, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, now this sounds pretty strong, that you keep away from every brother or sister who leads a disorderly life and not one in accordance with the tradition which you received from us. Uh, and uh, I'll insert here that it, it's uh, talking about the same kind of issue that the First Thessalonians passage did, this issue of uh, people not working, not being um, occupied in profitable things. So he says, I keep away from every brother or sister who leads a disorderly life and not one in accordance with the tradition which you receive from us. For, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because... And he's giving his example. We did not act in an undisciplined way among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer you ourselves as a role model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Yeah, I want to pause and say my Paul was getting down to the nitty-gritty things here. 
For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now we command and exhort such persons in the Lord Jesus Christ to work peacefully and eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person so as not to associate with them so that he will be put to shame. And yet do not regard that person as an enemy, but admonish that one as a brother or sister. This, this would make a wonderful Sunday school conversation. So the context for these instructions is that some people had misunderstood First Thessalonians and thought they no longer needed to work since Jesus was returning soon. So there's the same issue as First Thessalonians. Some people were not working, being lazy, because they thought Christ was going to return soon. And uh, I don't doubt but what if, if there had been a conversation among these people, uh, they might have uh, worked pretty hard to defend themselves in waiting on the Lord's return, anticipating the Lord's return. That would seem like a spiritual thing to do. But Paul is saying, well, there's also work to do. So the emphasis here is on the need to live a disciplined, upright, responsible life. Paul says this is the way he has lived his life, and this is the example he has given to them, which is the, quote, tradition and teaching uh, that he's referring to here. It's their tradition and teaching he's left for them to follow. And he's saying, okay, here's the way I live my life. I was a living example of the right way to live. He even says he worked night and day, which uh, I, I, I'm sorry, Paul, but I have some reservations about this thing of working night and day. It's, it sounds a little bit overmuch. And um, I seriously doubt that Paul meant you should never stop and uh, rest or, or sleep at night, whatever. But he's saying he was diligent. He wasn't lazy. So Paul says they should work and not be lazy. And a failure to be um, occupied with healthy, upright, Godly activity and be failure to be productive may result in being uh, the word busybodies and and meddling in other people's business and too much too much time on one's hands. So in other words, failure to plan and work for the future can result in various sins. And these people need to settle down and work quietly and and earn their own food 
and not be dependent on other people's hospitality. And certainly there are times when people need other people's um, assistance in material things, but uh, Paul is talking about uh, the way people normally live their lives. They they should be responsible and 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 have uh, positive productive activity to do. So Paul says the person who is unwilling to work should not eat. Now, now this this is a pretty hard position. So there's a time to rest and relax, but there's no time to be lazy, is what Paul is saying. So how does the church go about uh, addressing laziness if if there's such a thing going on? And if we did address laziness. Uh, when would Paul's firm position be the proper approach? Tell a person, okay, we're not going to let you eat. I mean, that is strong. So I don't have answers for all of that, but I'm using this scripture because it talks about the need to disciple other people. Paul says, if anyone in the church does not obey this instruction, that person should not be treated as an enemy, but should be admonished as a brother. <clears throat> so, um, I have something here in my notes that um, I want to say on the one hand, on the other hand, maybe I don't want to say. So, this isn't hopefully me making some political statement, but uh, <clears throat> I do believe it's important for us to recognize the, uh, the negative results of unchristian ideas that are floating around us in our world, in our new world, ideas that have become more prominent in the last maybe two, three years. Uh, especially maybe the last year, perhaps as a result of COVID and um, closing down of businesses and uh, the economy. Um, and people have lost their jobs, and uh, and I think we all know there's been this thing called stimulus money, but uh, I think I'm right about this, that this has resulted in some people uh, not working and not working when they could work, and, and even to the point that um, there are some businesses that are closing because they can't get enough help. And, uh, and I, I, think, I think I'm right about this, that if Paul was here, he, he would have something to say about this. He, he would have something to say about, I think he would call that laziness. I'm, I'm not trying to make um, judgmental statements about people, um, but 
this is just the kind of thing that I think we face in our world, and we and we're as believers. I think God expects us to use good judgment in these things. So the the next passage, the last one I have is Ephesians four, eleven to sixteen. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, or pastors who teach, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That means for the equipping of saints so they can serve. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, person, to the measure of this statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of people, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual Heart causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So the context for these verses is the call in the same chapter in verse 1 for them to walk worthy of their vocation or to live in a way that corresponds to their salvation. So they've been called to salvation and they have responded and this is the place where they are living in this salvation place. And Paul says, I walk, walk worthy of this place of salvation that you're in. And then in verses 2 to 6, Paul encourages them to be humble and gentle and patient with one another and to make allowance for each other's faults because of your love for one another and make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. (laughs) That's nice. So the, the focus there is on the importance of love. And, and the importance of fostering oneness and peace and harmony and being united 
uh, in the Spirit, who is one. And then beginning in verse 7, Paul focuses on the gifts that the resurrected Jesus gives to the church. And verse 11 names these gifts as people, which is a little different. He's not naming gifts that individual people have, but naming people as gifts. And he names apostles and prophets and evangelists and teaching pastors. And and Paul says their responsibility is to build up or equip the believers, the saints, to do the work of serving. So the purpose of these people that God, Christ, has given to the church, uh, their purpose is to engage in activities that grow the believers. That grow the believers into people who can do works of service. Uh, that that uh, people believers will become equipped to to serve for the building up of the body of Christ uh, until each and every believer comes to uh, the term used here is unity of faith and full knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and grows into mature people, uh, people who are spiritually and emotionally mature and aren't, aren't tossed about by every, every wind of doctrine, everything that people say on the internet, which, the sad reality in our day is that is that if you want to you can find a thousand different whatevers on internet promoting a great variety of ideas and and uh, th- these these Paul is saying in these verses that that uh, the, the the responsibility of of that we have is to is to uh, build each other up in a way that we're not deceived and tossed about by all of these ideas, strange ideas, ideas that people have. And with our uh, in our world of communications, as it is in social media, you you can find most anything. So that, this really does apply to us, I think, in our day. And according to verse 14 and following, when this is accomplished, believers will no longer be immature like children, no longer be tossed and blown around by by every new teaching and deceived by lies, and instead by speaking the truth in love to one another. These believers will grow in every way to become more and more like Christ, 
which will result in the body parts or members fitting together perfectly so that the whole body will be healthy and growing and maturing and be full of love. <clears throat> and if you're like I am, obviously this is a grand passage. It, it's almost like Paul. I don't know, I don't know if you actually were in reality when you wrote all of that. How do you expect us to grow in love and in understanding and in maturity to the point that every, everyone in the body is perfectly fitted together with each other and there's no friction whatsoever and, and everything is working in harmony? I mean, that just sounds so over the top, but this, this is, the vision that Paul has and the call, I think, that uh, that we have. So, summary here. I believe these scriptures clearly teach that believers are not only qualified, but have a responsibility to disciple each other for the purpose of growth in Christ-likeness. And I, I want to be clear that I... I'm not trying to promote a non-Christian focus on other people's faults um, in a justice sort of way, in an effort to perfect others, or in an effort to make myself look better than others. This, this is not what the Bible is teaching. It's not what I'm trying to promote. What I'm trying to promote here is the biblical admonition to be involved in one another's lives for the benefit of each believer. And uh, finally, and I will um, focus on this more in the next time I talk about this discipling issue, I want to emphasize the importance of love in our relationships and the role it has in making it possible to grow toward maturity. Uh, people who are secure in their belonging and attachment to the people around them are more likely to grow uh, spiritually and emotionally toward toward mature, become more mature. So the the uh, the attachment people have with each other, the belonging they have, is a huge factor in in people becoming more mature. And this is one of the, uh, most of these passages that I referred to this morning have something in them about love and uh, kindness and patience and, and using good judgment in, in our way of relating, discipling one another, admonishing one another. So the role of love. So I'll close with prayer. So Lord Jesus, thank you for your words and these words in your word about, about being engaged in believers, being engaged in believers' lives, uh, whether it's to address 
uh, a sin committed against us or a fault uh, someone has, um, a concern about um, behavior or attitudes or whatever it is. And Lord, we, we acknowledge to you that this uh, can feel like a really uh, huge challenge to have good judgment in these matters, and it is. And so we, uh, we acknowledge our need of you and the work of your spirit and wisdom in these matters. And uh, thank you that, that you have given us the promise that, that, that we can grow into the kind of people you want us to be and we can do the things you want us to do because, because you are present in our world and in our hearts, in our space, working to accomplish this task. And so turn our hearts toward you and direct us by your spirit. And uh, I pray you would bless each one who is listening uh, with wisdom, understanding from you uh, about these matters. Keep us in your care and direct us by your spirit. And thank you. Amen. All right. Um, Thank you, Milo, for that. Uh, let's see. A couple thoughts I had. Um, the title of this message was Making Disciples in the Life of the Church. And I guess my first thought was that um, while it sounds, maybe sounds easy, it involves a lot of effort and it's very challenging to actually make that happen often. And um, discipling to be accomplished, or discipling basically has to be accomplished with pure motives. That stuck out to me, that motive actually matters in discipling others. Um, this is pretty basic. Discipling others involves two or more people. Um, it, it certainly doesn't happen in my own little bubble. Um, another thought I had was that both or all parties must be willing participants for it to actually function as discipling. Um, if someone's unwilling to be discipled, the discipling results in disciplining rather than discipling. And we heard some of that this morning. Efforts in discipling others must always involve pointing them to Christ. You know, if we, if we view discipling as simply fixing others' issues or problems, it, it often will backfire. And, of course, the goal of discipling is to, to uh, bring reconciliation or to bring us closer to Christ. So that's the, the positive side of things and I'll check my phone and see if anyone sent a response uh, Gabriel says powerful message very relevant for old and young thank you Milo 
Delvin has a question. How do we get our courage up to admonish others when we realize we are personally needy? you have a response to that? <clears throat> well, that's probably the... Um, <clears throat> the best place we could be in if we hope to um, admonish anybody is to be transparent about our own our own stuff because the reality is not a single one of us is perfect even if we're um, even if we're spiritually mature, even if we're more mature, emotionally mature, spiritually mature than we were 10 years ago, uh, we're not perfect, and we we all. So I, th I think acknowledging that that's the case, I, I don't think we have to run ourselves in the ground about our need but to just be honest about it. I think um, it's helpful. All right. Um, one, I did receive a text from Lowell. Uh, he appreciates the fireside chat with Mr. Roosevelt, uh, I mean Zare, and he thanks everyone who made this possible behind the scenes. And he was blessed especially by Ephesians 4, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he recognizes we're all growing and thanks God for his patience with us. And he's requesting that the quartet sing the doxology, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen, Lowell. Sorry. <laughs> all right. You want to lead us in a benediction, Milo? Yes. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are, as you promised, alive. And, and with us to the uh, end of the age. Thank you that, that you have uh, thoughts and feelings toward your people. And you have good, good thoughts and good intentions and good goals and good purposes in your work, in our hearts, among us. So we, we trust you, Lord, to be at work to accomplish these good goals. Uh, in whatever, um, Whatever need each of us has physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, um, uh, and among us as a, as a body, um, whether it's about a place to worship or something else, you, you do have thoughts and, and uh, care about these matters and thank you that you're present and working in relation to these things. And I pray that you would bless each of us with your presence as you promised and, and make us a blessing and grow us 
and grow us up uh, more this week. Keep us in your care, and, and I pray that you would work to bring healing to all of us who have uh, physical uh, ailments. Lord, work, work to accomplish your, your best for us. And thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Amen.